Hello and welcome to the Chess Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Dominique Pepper. On behalf of CHESS, I'd like to welcome you to this month's CHESS podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and I'm the moderator of the CHESS podcast section. Thank you all for joining us today for what be a really informative discussion on lung cancer resection in the United States. Today, we're very fortunate to have two outstanding guests, and we'll be discussing uh, the first article, uh, Institution-Level Differences in Quality and Outcomes of Lung Cancer Resections in the United States, um, by Dr. Osarjban. And we'll also be discussing the accompanying editorial by Dr. Rajaram. So before we get started, let's have our two guests introduce themselves. Uh, Raymond? Yes, thank you. Uh, my name is Ray Osaragabon. I'm a thoracic medical oncologist and director of the multidisciplinary thoracic oncology uh, program at the Baptist uh, C- uh, Cancer Center here in Memphis, uh, Tennessee. Um, also a uh, research professor at Vanderbilt University. Great. Great to have you on the podcast, uh, Raymond. And then Ravi? Yes, thank you for having me. I'm uh, Ravi Rajaram. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Thoracic and Cardiovascular Surgery at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. It's a pleasure to be here. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast with us. So, Ravi, maybe you can set the stage for us. Why is it so important to understand the quality and outcome differences for lung cancer resections across uh, different institutions? Quality improvement really starts with, uh, with sound quality measurement. So fundamentally, if, if we as providers are going to hopefully improve upon the care deli- delivered to patients over time, we need to have measures to gauge our successes and our failures. And the underpinnings of quality measurement really start at an institutional level and even at a provider level with understanding where we're falling short and how we can improve. So I think Comparing between institutions in the context of lung cancer and, and lung cancer surgery, it's important for a number of reasons. Um, you know, first and foremost, lung cancer, like most malignancies, is treated in an elective fashion. So patients have the liberty of choice, and we're dealing with an increasingly health literate population. So patients have a number of resources available to them. Um, they can readily Google uh, lung cancer surgery and see publicly reported outcomes. The U.S. News and World Report publishes an annual list of best hospitals for lung cancer surgery, and patients can choose to establish care either locally or travel a great distance to seek out surgery. So comparing outcomes between institutions is important from a patient perspective, and consequently, it should be important from a, a provider and a payer perspective as well. And you can imagine that as lung cancer screening becomes more and more prominent and we start detecting earlier, more resectable lung cancers, we're going to continue to see a focus on these outcomes um, across our health system. And then I guess the final thing I would add is that lung cancer surgery, it's it's quite a fixed event, right? Um, A patient's hospitalized, undergoes an elective surgery, there's measurable heart outcomes in the perioperative period. And so comparing outcomes directly reflect between, between different institutions with respect to lung cancer surgery, well, that directly reflects on factors such as patient selection, surgeon technical skill, 
guideline concordant care, really a number of different things that can translate into differences in short and long-term survival. So in that context, I think there's a lot of opportunities for measurement and lung cancer overall, of course, substantially affects our, our population health. So Ravi, which specific factors would you consider to be important in factoring in to institutional level differences? And then the second point is, uh, what are the potential pitfalls of using institution level differences to assess quality and outcomes? Yeah, these are great questions. Um, so so we, we understand first by way of background, um, it, it is important to remember that when we're talking about lung cancer um, and we want to focus more on survivorship, um, the, although the people who undergo surgical resection uh, for lung cancer are in the minority, anywhere from 25 to 30% in the United States, they actually constitute the vast majority of long-term survivors. Uh, so, so somewhere about 75% of five-year survivors are people with lung cancer who had surgery at some point. So surgery really matters. Um, when we uh, talk about differences in outcomes, the tendency, as Ravi hinted at, is to look at the individual level. Oh, this type of person uh, doesn't do well, uh, whether tall, short, uh, black, white, uh, rich, poor, whatever. Um, but one of the things that we're increasingly having to, to pay attention to is that there are multiple levels at which uh, outcome differences are driven. Uh, the focus uh, on the individual level is probably focusing at the least efficient um, um, level for uh, quality improvement uh, intervention to overcome disparities. There are the uh, provider levels, institutional levels, and then, of course, there's the policy level, which is probably the most powerful lever. Um, for us to be able to trigger these other, um, interventions at these other levels, we have to understand what is really driving uh, the, the, the processes that lead to the outcome differences. Um, and, and that's where there is still a black box. So your question, what are the most important um, uh, drivers of institutional level uh, disparities is, is very important. And the, the, the honest answer is we don't really know, which is why there is a need, first of all, to establish that this is for real and then to develop measures with which we can begin to compare um, good and bad, which ultimately gives us the opportunity to look more closely at clusters of good and compare them to clusters of bad to be able to figure out what the differences are. Because ultimately, those differences are going to be driven by processes. They're going to be driven by human activities. So you, we get to the question of the limitation of, of this uh, uh, approach. Um, the limitation is um, you, you do have to understand what you don't know, um, the, the enormity of what you don't know, rather, which is the actual nuts and bolts drivers that, that are taking us in the disparate directions that we, we have described. I think the methodology, looking at the National Cancer Database retrospectively, uh, is important to acknowledge as a limitation of this type of work. Thank you, Raymond. And uh, Ravi, any uh, comments on that? 
Yeah, I think Raymond makes a lot of excellent points. Um, you can imagine that for something as broadly affecting as lung cancer, that any sustainable long-term solution has to be driven at the policy level. Um, and that's been attempted to be undertaken in a number of other countries, right, in, in, in this form of regionalization of care, and that's certainly been a hot topic with respect to complex cancer surgery at large. So certain um, countries, Canada, the U.K., et cetera, they regionalized their care with the hope that by driving individuals with lung cancer to certain institutions and performing surgery at those institutions, it'll translate into overall improvements in short and long-term outcomes. But that's not really the model of care that we have set up um, in the United States, nor I think is it necessarily going to be in the, in the near future for a variety of reasons. So, you may, I think it really starts with understanding measures and drivers um, of differences in lung cancer survival and those could be quantitative um, in the form of <clears throat> database analyses, but I think a lot of qualitative work, and that's something that I think Raymond mentioned in, in his manuscript and I think is, is critically important in this context, is, is really needed to understand organizational factors of high-performing institutions versus low-performing institutions to, to really unpack what we don't know, as, as Raymond said. Great. So let's dive into your study, Raymond. Maybe you could give us your study methods and how they addressed any limitations of previous studies. Yeah. So what we did was we looked at the National Cancer Database, uh, looking at curative intent, uh, lung cancer resections over a span of time. And we used the um, Commission on Cancer's uh, structural categorization of institutions, you know, from uh, NCI-designated uh, cancer centers at one end all the way out to um, community uh, programs at the other end, uh, in between which you have uh, academic programs and uh, you had uh, large community, comprehensive community programs, which are specifically defined by the COC. So we took these uh, groups, these institutions, and, and layered the lung cancer resections over the span of time we looked at out by institutional category. And then we, um, we adjusted for patient level uh, differences, which we know has been clearly established as a driver of, of care and outcome uh, differences. But we try to, um, you know, eliminate that. And then we looked, we basically asked the question, um, what happens if you removed clearly evidence-based markers of um, poor care that lead to bad outcomes from the patients in each category of institutions that, that, that we looked at. So, for example, we uh, looked at resections with uh, um, positive margins, uh, which we have previously clearly demonstrated is a bad uh, uh, sentinel marker for outcomes. Um, we looked at... Um, resections without lymph node uh, examination. We looked at non-anatomic resections. We even looked at things like the inappropriate use of adjuvant uh, therapy, radiation therapy, and, uh, and uh, chemotherapy, all of which we pre-specified. And, and so we did this serial subtraction evaluation where after we had 
clearly established that each of these benchmarks of quality was indeed associated with uh, outcomes differences, survival differences. We, we then compared the incidence of, of these uh, bad uh, markers across the different types of institutions, and we found a sequential um, progression uh, from the best end being NCI-designated cancer centers, the worst end being small community uh, programs. And then we um, looked at what happens to survival as you remove the groups of patients who had each of these uh, um, outcome, uh, uh, th- these quality um, uh, markers, including, by the way, uh, 60-day postoperative mortality. And interestingly, what we found was, although the residual population left after you had removed all these uh, pre-specified uh, negative quality benchmarks, uh, the population left behind came closer in long-term outcomes there still remained a, uh, a, a, a stratified a stratification of the survival um, by the same directional uh, relationship between NCI-designated cancer programs all the way out to community uh, cancer programs, suggesting to us that, yeah, these um, benchmarks that we look at, while they are important, they are not nearly the whole story. Because the the disparity in long term survival uh, shrank by anywhere from I believe about eleven percent to about twenty five percent or thereabouts. So the the bulk of the disparity in in survival remained even after we had removed from the analytic cohort uh, those who had these uh, bad quality markers. So even eliminating those bad quality markers was not enough, uh, even after we had essentially normalized the differences between pop- the, 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 the patients that go to the different institutions. How do you make sense of that? It appears that we don't have a clear picture, based on what you're saying, of all the factors that uh, could improve uh, outcomes, or we don't know all the factors that are making outcomes so poor. Raymond? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, that that, that is absolutely right. That tells us our work is just started. Our work isn't done yet. Because the, the point is, we don't understand. So we know a few things. We know that, uh, that clearly there is a difference uh, in survival. That is not open to dispute. We know, yes, indeed, that there are some differences in the selection of patients. But what we establish here is that even after you remove those patient-level differences, there remain outcome differences. So there's something going on within institutions between the the, the, the providers of care within the institutions, the culture of care within the institutions, and, and various other things that we really need to, to, to look hard at to understand why we have such striking differences uh, between, uh, b- between patients who seek care at different types of institutions. So, Ravi, you had the opportunity to review this paper. What struck you about the findings, and how do we get down to understanding these factors that we just don't seem to have a grapple on yet? Right. So, you know, I think I think the study was interesting across a number of different domains. Um, first, Raymond and his co-authors, you know, indeed confirmed that these quality measures that have been developed over time 
are indeed important. They do indeed have a strong association with long-term survival overall. So that's kind of first and foremost. Clearly, these are quality metrics that should continue to be adopted and used and focuses and a focus for quality improvement. I think the second thing is, as Raymond said, is that you know the sum total of these different quality measures, in addition to postoperative mortality, really constituted a fairly trivial amount of the overall variation between different hospital centers. So it leaves me to wonder, at least, that you know, the development of measures, we've stopped short a bit, and that additional quality measures, whether they're process of care, outcome, or even pre-specifying certain structural measures that lung cancer surgery centers need to have in place, developing those types of measures can further lead us to understand variation in care between different hospitals. And I think, you know, a corollary to that is the fact that we should recognize that oftentimes these measures are developed based on large data sets like the National Cancer Database or like SEER and so on. But ultimately, we're limited in developing measures by the variables collected in these databases. So, for example, if you're a patient who undergoes lung cancer surgery, you care not only about your long-term survival, but critically, is this cancer ever going to come back? And it's hard to kind of measure disease-free survival or cancer recurrence um, on a large population level or even a, a, a hospital-based registry because they're not, it's not readily collected in these databases. And so clearly more time, work, and investment is needed across um, a number of different domains to kind of unpack and understand quality differences and develop quality measures going forward. And I think, you know, the, the real kind of distilled point here is that there is significant and tremendous variation across different centers in this country, no matter how you split it. Um, you know, Raymond and his colleagues use the structural characteristic of the type of facility, and that's important. But um, clearly, there's a lot of underlying causes that go into that. Ultimately, I think from a patient perspective, where you go matters, but it's not always easy to pin down where you should go. And I think it just, again, underscores the point that we need qualitative, qualitative work in this area to help determine some of the organizational factors and resources that affect survival long-term in this population. And I think the, the last point to me, at least, is that we should, again, recognize that when, when measure developers are developing quality measures, is they're oftentimes doing it in the form of internal quality improvement efforts, not necessarily for inter-institutional or cross-hospital comparisons. So I guess it should not be necessarily surprising that these measures, which are developed so that an individual hospital can improve its care over time, doesn't necessarily ex- explain why hospital A is better or worse than hospital B. It's not necessarily the intent of the measure itself, um, but it is kind of a sobering point that quite a bit of variation does exist when you remove those patients with poor performance. Great. And I definitely want to come back to this issue of what strategies are needed in the future, but I want to ask you both the question in terms of, like, if the layperson read the study, they may say, well, Maybe the NCI institutes were just more selective of their cases. They only focused on patients who they know they would um, have a good outcome, whereas the community hospitals, maybe they uh, focused on patients or selected patients who may not have had as great an outcome, but because there was no one else to do the surgery, they wanted to give the patient uh, the benefit of the, uh, of the surgery. How would you respond to that question, and how would you get to this question of um, what future strategies are needed to address the discrepancies? Uh, Ravi first, and then Raymond. 
Yeah, I think that's, that's a great question. Um, selection bias uh, definitely comes into play here. You know, it's always a limitation anytime we do any type of retrospective or observational study. And um, importantly, in the National Cancer Database, um, you can adjust for certain factors based on basic demographics, comorbidity score, but other criteria known to impact both short and long-term outcomes and survival and after long resection, such as pulmonary function, performance status, smoking status, um, ASA score, none, none of these factors are present within the database. So unadjusted confounding um, could be at play and explain at least some of the survival differences, and that kind of directly ties into your your point about uh, survival differences um, um, that exists, you know, uh, based on patient selection. Um, I think in terms of another criteria that we don't really understand here in this type of study is that, and, and again, your point, I think, about a National Cancer Institute designated center versus a community hospital is a good one with respect to patient volume, is that, you know, the study was not adjusted for hospital volume. Now, that is a, a bit of a controversial topic. There are a number of high-profile studies that suggest hospital volume is really tied to outcomes in this population, and there are a number of studies that suggest they are not. So ultimately, it, it's a bit of a mixed bag when you look at the literature, but at least one prominent study looking at something called the volume pledge, um, which was a pledge made by a number of health systems to try and centralize lung surgery within higher volume institutions, found that although hospital volume wasn't strongly associated always with short-term outcomes after lung cancer surgery, surgeon volume did appear to have a, a significant effect. So that's one aspect that we're not necessarily getting at in this analysis either. And so you can imagine that a large NCI center, maybe it's factors like patient selection, maybe it is some degree of hospital volume that would mitigate these differences, but maybe it's also the individual surgeon volume. And conversely, at a community center, maybe surgeon volume is really what's driving kind of some of the differences. Because ultimately, you know, again, as speaking from my own experience as a surgeon, um, you know, my goals are, of course, to get a patient safely through a hospitalization, safely through a pulmonary resection, but also to do an oncologically appropriate um, evaluation and thorough examination um, intraoperatively in terms of lymph nodes and margin and anatomic resection and all the things that Raymond looked at. So there's a number of different domains of quality, I think, at the surgeon level that we're attuned to. And I think that may matter perhaps as much as anything in this type of analysis. I think those are really useful uh, comments. Uh, Raymond, what is your response to them? Yeah, I think these are the, the volume issue always comes up uh, because it's, it's um, now not quite age old, but it's very well uh, entrenched uh, when, when that uh, data first started coming out, uh, mostly looking at uh, post-op uh, mortality, so short-term outcomes. It, it seemed uh, very logical, um, the volume essentially being a surrogate for experience, if you will. Um, so the idea being the more you did of something, the better you got at it, and the likely better the outcomes you would achieve made a lot of logical sense. The challenge, of course, in medicine is a lot of things make logical sense, but when you test them out, they don't quite pan out. Um, 
And so fast forward a few decades, and as people have looked at the volume outcome relationship, it's turned out to be extremely complex. And the paper that Ravi just mentioned was one. Actually, I, I happened to write an editorial in response to uh, for the Journal of Clinical Oncology. And, and that paper, yes, indeed, uh, there was something of a relationship, but it was at the extreme end of high volume. So, so at the provider level, for example, it was the surgeons who had over 150 resections per year, something like that, that, that you began to see had uh, improvement in some of the markers. So, so really complex. And, and that, while that may be part of the solution, it's also important to remember that places that have attempted to regionalize care, such as parts of Canada, uh, Ontario, when they have looked at their outcomes uh, at post-regionalization, uh, they really haven't found the kind of impact on, on long-term survival uh, and short-term measures as one might have desired to see if that was the solution. And, and I somewhat snidely remark sometimes that, you know, it is possible to reinforce bad practice in high volume. You know, just the fact that you do a lot of something wrong doesn't mean it suddenly becomes right. Um, so volume matters, but volume is, is not probably the panacea that we seek. Um, it is a complex thing. I, I think that there is the full spectrum from patient selection to what the clinicians are doing within the four walls of the institution to what the institutional policies are that encourage or discourage what turns out to be, you know, optimal practice, to all the other things that happen to people after they leave the four walls of, of the OR suite and, and the four walls of the hospital. Um, but but these are things that are quantifiable. They just require different methods than we have applied so far. Um, but I think part of the point that we make is that our work is still before us. We haven't really engaged this challenge the way we need to. And, and there is a need to engage it because uh, I earlier mentioned that if we're ever going to turn lung cancer to a survival story, um, we have to acknowledge that the vast majority of survivors are people who were fortunate enough to, to have surgery. Ravi also mentioned that with the advent of uh, low-dose screening CT and all the effort being made to um, use algorithms to manage people with incidental lung nodules who um, are at high risk for lung cancer, we expect that in coming years, we will see a hard downshift in lung cancer stage to the range that can be intervened on with surgery and things like that. So the burden of responsibility on us as a society, if we really want to make lung cancer go away as the public health challenge it currently is, will be to look hard not only at how we find these patients early, but how we deliver care uh, to them. So the challenge with surgery, of course, is that a lot of the benchmarks of quality that have been looked at have mainly looked at post-operative events, you know, mortality at 30 days, at 60 days, at, you know, even 90 days, some 120 days. But the reality is 
most patients survive the surgery, which is what those benchmarks are looking at. What are your odds of, of dying after having surgery? The challenge is only about 50% of patients who have had surgery survive the cancer itself, meaning that somewhere down the line, after the surgeon is out of the picture, the patient's cancer still goes on and kills the patient, despite the fact that, you know, going into the encounter with the surgeon, the hope, the expectation was that after surgery, we would be rid of the cancer. And one of the things that we're highlighting here is that the long-term outcomes are so disparate, the, the enormity of the population-level impact of that long-term difference in outcome is way larger than any differences in short-term outcomes, uh, such as post-op mortality. And this is an area that we really have never shone enough light on. And, and it is definitely time for us to begin to do that. So, Raymond, you mentioned the importance that the work ahead of us, uh, there's a lot of work ahead of us. So, Ravi, I want to draw your attention to, and you mentioned this uh, in your comments about the fact that the, one of the limitations of big data is that it depends on what data you've collected. And some may say, you know what, we need more data on um, baseline drug use, methamphetamine or smoking use. We need to know about poverty status. We need to know about local distance uh, traveling towards uh, the center where they're having the surgery. There's also regional differences. Um, we've definitely found that in the COVID pandemic that there are distinct regional differences between different states and different regions of the United States. How would we get this kind of data into a data set that we could actually answer the questions that we're asking today? Ravi? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I think it's a it's a it's a significant challenge. You know, um, not all of these things have to be necessarily done within the context or the framework of a national database. Um, something that's you know we tend to draw our attention to things like the National Cancer Database and things like Medicare data, et cetera. Some of these could be in the form of more localized database. So you can imagine that inter interinstitutional collaboration or registries that can allow at least some um, measurement of preoperative considerations such as the factors that you mentioned, um, things like preoperative staging, the intensity of preoperative staging so that we're actually appropriately labeling a stage one patient, a stage one patient, or, or, or a higher stage patient, actually detecting that early on so that we avoid surgery that is going to be fraught with a high likelihood of early recurrence. Um, Manage. I mean, and I think this is something that Raymond touched on earlier, but I think survivorship in this context is, is critically important. So learning from other institutions and understanding from a survivorship standpoint, how are different institutions managing recurrences? How are they um, acting upon that? Are they using systemic therapy? What the role of local therapy is after systemic therapy has demonstrated the disease is responsive? Those types of collaborations are I think going to be a real challenge at a national level, but I could certainly see those types of um, the type of data sharing being done at um, a kind of more regional level, if you will. And this is something I made mention of, you know, in our paper, but but um, a number of statewide collaboratives. Now they tend to be surgical in nature, but a number of collaboratives have really demonstrated that by learning from by um, sharing knowledge and data and mentorship from low and high volume institutions can really p 
positively affect one another with respect to outcomes at the patient level. And so I think there's kind of a number of challenges there in terms of the national database. It, you know, it would really require significant investment in time and, in, and money and, and certainly in the infrastructure to set something up like that. But I think a lot of the um, possibilities um, to understand and unpack some of these different um, aspects in terms of variation in care do exist at an institutional level. It's just incumbent upon us to understand from one another how exactly care is being affected by these different considerations, because ultimately some of this is we don't know what we don't know. And um, the last kind of aspect I'll mention is that, you know, as Raymond mentioned, that a number of these patients who are resectable have uh, recurrence that affects their overall long-term survival. We shouldn't be ignorant of the fact that, you know, with immunotherapy, with targeted therapy also coming to the fold with a number of clinical trials investigating the use of these different therapies along with surgery, either in the neoadjuvant or the adjuvant setting, those aspects may also really positively affect um, survival on an overall population level. Um, the data is still out. We don't have that necessarily at this time, but I expect it will be one aspect that will affect long-term survival going forward. Great. And Raymond, your response to Ravi and uh, what next steps are planned? Yeah, I, I, I think I agree with Ravi's points. Um, I, w w what, what I would add to that is to highlight the fact that um, the solutions to this problem um, already, uh, a lot of the solutions already exist. We have them. We just haven't deployed them yet. Um, whether it's the problem of lack of information, lack of data, um, the technology to collect information, analyze it, and use it um, productively exists. Um, we, we maybe have lacked the political will to uh, deploy those resources to give us the information uh, to use properly. Um, and I suspect in part the reason for that is we have underestimated the enormity of the loss. Um, we, we don't quite understand the, the amount of um, lost opportunity there is. Um, I, I think sometimes we, we see these numbers and we accept them. You know, there's still this idea, oh, it is lung cancer. Um, what did you expect? The patient died. Um, but but as we, with new discoveries, uh, you know, new adjuvant treatments, uh, personalized medicine, um, immunotherapy, as Ravi alluded to, and additional things that we can bring to bear that transform the expectation uh, at the street level of what happens when you come down with lung cancer to one of, um, yes, uh, people do survive lung cancer, and, oh, gee, um, yes, I, I should expect to be one of those people. Maybe we can begin to hold the people who need to be held accountable, accountable, uh, the providers, the organizations that provide care, uh, that deliver care, and, and at the policy level, the makers of policy that allow us to continue to slide through in a world in which you have such horribly disparate outcomes, um, but, but we just accept that they are what they are.
the technology exists to create the data sets that we can look at to understand much better. Um, the, the plea I would make is a plea for the political will to take on this challenge, um, to look and understand so we can inform in order to do better. Harvey, how do you get that responsibility uh, to be shouldered by clinicians and uh, politicians and uh, policymakers and hospital institutions? That, that is a bit of a million-dollar question. Um, you know, I think I think informational transparency is one aspect that um, we should not ignore, and I think that's that's why uh, a lot of the studies looking at big databases and looking at um, outcomes is, is really important. You know, there was a study, forgive me, I don't remember the exact year, there was a study looking at lung cancer surgery and mediastinal lymph node evaluation, and something like over... I think something like only about 30-something percent of the actual patients in the study had their lymph nodes sampled by surgeons. Now, this was decades ago, um, but that kind of critical failure in lymph node evaluation and the resulting um, survival uh, differences that patients who have their lymph nodes evaluated versus those that, that, that don't, I mean... That, that to me was quite striking, and I think as more data and more studies come out that really shine a bright light on outcomes that increase transparency to the public at large, that hold clinicians, providers, surgeons, oncologists, health systems accountable, um, I think we're going to see more and more of a focus at um, from a public perspective, but also critically important from a payer perspective on outcomes in this arena. And ultimately, you know, health systems that fail to demonstrate, um, or providers, I should say, that fail to demonstrate appropriate outcomes within this space are going to have loss of volume and consequently loss of revenue. And those types of um, carrots and sticks can really change, um, I guess, the, the focus of uh, different health systems in terms of the resources they invest within the within the within the patient population that they care for. So you know, I don't think there's an easy answer. I think um, I think we need transparency. I think public reporting of outcomes is a good thing. I think um, payers paying attention to outcomes is probably also going to move the necessary levers in order to have real sustainable change occur. But I think that along with all of that comes a real need for research, um, not only at a basic science and translational level, but also at an implementation level to put into place a number of policies and a number of um, strategies that we know will affect positively patient outcomes after lung cancer surgery here and now. Yeah, I definitely agree that work needs to be done. Um, so Raymond and Ravi, I do want to be mindful of your time. Um, uh, we're going to go towards uh, concluding this podcast, but I want to give each of you the opportunity to uh, make any concluding remarks or to mention anything that you prepared for the podcast that you haven't had the opportunity to share with us. Um, I'll start with Ravi and then uh, Raymond. Ravi? Thank you. So, you know, ultimately, I think this, this study really nicely demonstrates how these measures at an institutional level affect long-term survival. Um, and I think 
going back to my prior point about transparency and shining a bright light on things that deserve attention, I think this type of study does re- draw renewed and focused attention on the degree to which interhospital differences exist with uh, respect to resectable lung cancer outcomes, and yet they're not explained by our current measures. So the inference uh, being that we need more research, we need more inquiry into this area, and we may need to employ kind of non-traditional stat- strategies in the surgical space, so things like qualitative studies um, that our current databases don't seem readily equipped to to help address at this time. So more needs to be done to unpack what exactly is driving differences in lung cancer care between hospitals, um, and that's really just going to take an investment broadly across our society, across our providers, across um, even our um, patient population to really understand what exactly is driving these different factors um, in order to improve our overall public health. Thank you. And uh, Raymond? Yes, thank you. I, I will just uh, throw one last uh, bit here and, and say that um, it, it is important for us to uh, measure. Uh, it's critically important for us to measure what we do and what comes out of what we do. Um, But as we pick the things to measure, we also have a a responsibility to make sure that the the benchmarks we select are valid and that they have the desired impact, meaning um, when you do things the way they ought to be, you ought to get the the results that you you desire. That, too, is part of the work before us. Um, I I think clearly what we demonstrate is that the bulk of the outcome differences cannot really be explained by the benchmarks that we currently have. So, So we need to go look for the others out there and, and make sure we find them, validate them, and then, as Ravi mentioned, upon discovery, is the mandate to implement and disseminate. An outstanding conclusion. Thank you very much. Um, A very big thank you to Raymond and Ravi for a really thought-provoking conversation, and a big thank you to our chess community for joining us. I'm Dominic Pepper, and this is the Chess Podcast.